If you turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 21, last two verses, Luke 21, verses 37 to 38, and we will be going into Luke 22, down to verse 13. For a little bit, I thought I was going to be preaching to three people today, so I'm glad we were able to double that a little bit, and I have a couple more faces that I can be looking at. Again, we are going to be in Luke chapter th- chapter 21, verses 37 into 22. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and conferred with chief uh, with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them, betray him to them and they were glad and agreed to give him money so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray them in an absence of the crowd then the day and then came the day of unleavened bread on which the passover lamb had been sacrificed so jesus sent peter and john saying go and prepare the passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reading of your word. Please be able to speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. May we be able to apply this passage to our life. May I be able to uh, have this understandable for everyone, and as I said, may it bring glory to you. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think about Christ? Was he a wise teacher who gives you good advice? Is he just a moral example, maybe teaches us how we ought to live today? Maybe he's a revolutionary figure for you, and he was simply one that stood up to political authorities and stood up for oppressed people groups. What comes to your mind today when you think about Christ? All of us are to think very carefully about how we ought to think about Jesus today. It's more important than just an intellectual thought experiment to check off our box. It's not an interesting exercise that's left for just seminary students and pastors. This is the sum and substance of what it means today to be a Christian. Thankfully, in our passage today, we are brought into the public ministry of Christ. 
particularly his final moments on earth before he is about to go and be crucified. However, this passage begins to answer that question, who is Jesus? Why did he come to earth? And what does that mean for me today? And if you listen, you can actually begin to understand that question, what comes to your mind when you think about Christ? So we're dividing this passage up into two portions. Uh, verses 1 two through 6, we see Satan's plans. And then in verses 7 to 13, we're going to see Jesus' plans. So with that, if you remember what we've already said in Luke, we've seen in Luke, our Lord has already predicted three different times that he is going to go and suffer when he enters into Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to authorities He's going to die, and since this time is coming near, how does he handle this coming conflict? How does he respond to the conflict that is coming in his life? Does he draw back to himself? Does he meditate and try to prepare himself? Does he change his model of ministry whatsoever at all compared to what he's been, always been doing? We'll actually read verses 37. We see exactly what he does, that every day, he was teaching in the temple, but that night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. You know those moments in your life <laughs> where you have a conversation with someone you have to have, a, a hard conversation, or you have something on your schedule you really don't want to do, and you just kind of, you change up your plans, you try to prepare yourself, you try to avoid these confrontations, because I think most of us are pretty confront, co confrontation averse people. But we look at this passage, and what is going on? How is Jesus responding to conflict here? He is actually does the same exact thing he's always done since he's been on earth. He is going, he's continuing to teach the people. We see in verse 38, the very response to that is early in the morning, everyone is coming out and listening to this teacher teach them the true ways how to come into this coming kingdom that Christ is telling them about. In fact, it comes as no surprise that this is one of Jesus's responses he gives to the religious leaders later on because at least in Matthew 26 he says when they finally do arrest him have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled from the beginning Jesus understands the very purpose for why he came to this earth, and that is to submit to his Father's will, to come and suffer this death so that many could actually receive forgiveness of sins. But more importantly, how, as we as Christians today, how do you respond to God's will in your own life? When you know that something is unbiblical, are you quick to make an excuse for your actions? Uh, maybe a uh, you know something God has commanded us in Scripture, but instead you try to find the escape clause. It, maybe it's true of you today that C.S. Lewis once said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, have it your way. But what can we learn from Christ's own example? What can we learn from his own ministry today for our lives? that Jesus perfectly submitted to his Father's will, perfectly submitted to the plan that God has set out for him. 
He came to earth to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in our place. And he came to actually die a sacrificial death on the cross for us. So for all of us seeking to faithfully follow Christ today, for all of us looking to have an established relationship with God and wanting to know what God wants us to do, the Bible tells us that we are being conformed more and more to Christ's own image. We are growing in our Christian walk. We are coming to a better understanding to who Jesus is. So when we ask ourselves, what should I do? Why should I care about God's will in my own life today? Our answer ought to be, because that is the very sum and substance of what Jesus cared about throughout his own ministry. But keep going. Keep looking in our passage and go into chapter 22. And we see that Christ has come and he's fully committed to the Father's will. He's fully committed to what he, the Lord has set out for him. And as we said, Christ has, himself has predicted three times before he even entered Jerusalem that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but then he's actually going to be resurrected to life again. But it's also, we can't forget about the fact of what time it actually is when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Because look at verse 1 of chapter 22 and what it says, that the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And there are actually three different pilgrimage festivals for the ancient Israelites. There was the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths or Shelters, and then the one that many people know themselves, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or how we obviously know it, Passover. This was what Jesus was currently experiencing. This would be the most hectic time to be in Jerusalem, the busiest week of all the year, because this is the time that the Israelites were thanking the very provisions that God had given them, looking back to Exodus 12 to 15, when God brought them out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and brought them into covenant relationship with himself to be a people set apart holy for him. And during this busy week, when Jesus is in the temple, we actually begin to see exactly how Satan is responding to Christ in Jerusalem. Because look at verse 22, the, or verse uh, 2, and you see exactly what's going on while Jesus is in the temple, that it's not as if nothing's happening because the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. We've seen the opposition between the religious leaders and Jesus throughout the book of Luke so far. But it's reached such a boiling point at this point that they are no longer trying to hide behind social niceties. They're no longer just trying to beat Jesus in theological debate. They just want to see Jesus dead at this point. Then the only problem they have, though, the only reason why they can't just walk into the temple right now, arrest Jesus, and put him on trial, is that they know he is the most popular religious teacher of their time, most likely. And if they were to walk in and arrest Jesus in the middle of the most crazy week in Jerusalem, that there would be riots in the streets, that they were absolutely terrified to do this. But tensions were so high in Jerusalem, and yet Satan, as we see, he has more crafty ways to get his plan accomplished. Because look, look at verse thir- 3, and we see what happens, that instead of them arresting Jesus, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who is numbered among the twelve. And we see in verses 4 to 6 exactly what happens 
between these two, that Judas receives money, 30 pieces of silver to be exact. The scribes finally accomplish what they want. They finally have their way to arrest Jesus. And we have the blessing of the 21st century today. We actually know how this story ends. Uh, you know the name Judas Iscariot. In fact, uh, you, it's been be termed into a synonym with other names such as Brutus or Benedict Arnold for America. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the, the titles that you'd be absolutely terrified for one of your friends to call you is Judas. In uh, Renaissance literature, one of the insults that many artists would give him is red hair, because that was a negative characteristic to show him. Actually, in the Dante's Inferno, the ninth circle of hell is reserved for just Judas and Satan himself. But try to read this story. Try to read where we are in Luke with fresh eyes for a moment and forget how the story ends. Consider for a moment who Judas actually is. He was actually not just, it wasn't that we could line him up with the other disciples and we could tell that something was off. He had a top hat and monocle and a twisted beard, mustache. We could just tell that there was something that was going to go off with him. He actually, he was among Christ's public ministry from the very beginning. He witnessed all of his miracles. He forsaked everything in his life. He regularly heard the substance of why Christ came to this earth. He gave up everything, as I said, to follow this teacher, to follow this savior, and yet he turned out to be a hypocrite. So much more than that, because J.C. Ryle we often hear about him, but he says of this verse, to be tempted by Satan is bad enough. To be shifted, buffeted, led captive by him is truly terrible. But when Satan enters into a man and dwells in him, the man becomes indeed a child of hell. What a temptation it is for us to imagine being near the message of Christ is enough to bring us into heaven. We may think that as long as I go to church, as long as I just do generic Christian activities, maybe read the Bible once in a while, maybe have a couple prayers before I eat, that that's what makes me a Christian. Some of us today, actually, we ourselves might see the hypocrisy in our heart, that we know a few facts about Christianity, and really uh, the only reason why I come to church is because that's just what a good citizen does. That's what a good person in general would do, is go to church on Sunday. But a second important lesson for us today, looking at Judas, is that even those close to Jesus himself, close to his message, can be entirely separated from him. We've already said this would have come as an absolute shock to every single one of the disciples, because you're going to see in a moment in the next passage, Jesus himself is going to say, someone sitting here is going to betray me. And it's not like everyone turned in the room to Judas and immediately knew who it was because they began questioning among themselves, is it me? Who is it? Who could possibly be the one to betray our Lord and Savior? There was nothing that separated Judas from everyone. It's not that we could turn to him and say, yep, it's definitely him. He sat down and ate the same meal with them. Let us not fool ourselves into thinking that inauthentic Christianity doesn't exist in the church. That something that is outside 
our lives, that it couldn't possibly ever affect us personally. It's easy for us to imagine that Judas is just few and far between, that it's really, there's not really people that have ulterior motives, that use religion, use the Bible and the message of Christ to serve their own ends, to serve their own means, to glorify themselves. We can even make this very personal to ourselves today, that all of this hypocrisy could never be true of myself. You really don't need to be concerned about this message too deeply. I would encourage you to consider one fact that we're going to see in a moment, is that Peter, Christ's most eminent disciple, he wrote two books of the New Testament, and yet within the same exact chapter, he is going to deny his Lord and Savior Jesus as well three times. And at least from that moment, he is in no different situation than Judas. That they are both hypocrites at that period. They both betrayed their Lord. And both were the last people we would expect to do such. This is a harsh reality for every single one of us to consider today. But scripture is calling us to remind ourselves for humbleness for us to be continually meditating on our relationship with our Lord, to be calling out to him and falling on the mercies of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be continuing, continuing to be seeking and following the uh, means of grace that God has given in our lives. We ought to examine our own hearts today to see if we do have our own hi hidden hypocrisy. But most importantly, there's... There may be some here today truly listening and already know, they didn't need me to say this, that they're the first to say, I know I'm a hypocrite. In fact, if I were to read this story today, the only person I could compare myself to is Judas. And I feel the guilt, the shame, all of the weight of that sin holding on to me today. I would encourage you to consider looking back at Peter again. Because, as I said, Peter and Judas are no different from this point of the story. But ultimately, something changes. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? It's the fact that Judas, at the beginning of Acts, he ends his life because of the guilt and shame that he was holding on to because of betraying his Lord and Savior. He couldn't handle the hypocrisy and what he ended up doing. Peter... Because of Christ reaching out at the end of the Gospel of John, he says to him three times, do you love me? Which is ultimately recalling three times that Peter himself denied his Lord and Savior. And through this scene of reconciliation we see, we can see the beautiful truth for, through Peter for ourselves. That as our Westminster Confession of Faith says, there is no sin so small that it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it brings damnation upon those who truly repent. For everyone listening and feels the weight of hypocrisy, the guilt and shame in your life, maybe a double life that you've been living, and you don't feel like you could ever see true biblical forgiveness, you will find that once you cast your sins upon Christ, that there is nothing that will hold you from forgiveness, that you can actually turn to him today and find this reconciled relationship that Peter himself received, despite his hypocrisy. But that's just uh, what's going on with Satan 
That's his plans for how he's trying to change and end the purpose that God had sent Christ to earth. But continue on, verses 1 to 6 tells us exactly what Satan says. Look at verses 7 to 13, and we see what Jesus does in response. Because everything we've read in this passage so far, this has been a pretty bleak chapter. This is actually the darkest moment of the Gospels, and it's going to get worse and worse from here. It doesn't seem like anything is going to change. Jesus' own disciple has betrayed him. The religious leaders have gotten what they want. Jesus is about to go suffer and die. But what does Jesus do in response to all of this? It's not as though he's unaware of what's going to happen. As I said, he's, he himself is the one that's predicted that he's going to die. He knows everything. He understands Satan's devices and schemes. But what does he do? Look at verses 7 to 13. It describes that they go. He tells his disciples to find a man with a jar full of water. Go, and we're going to have Passover. Nothing has changed. Jesus doesn't change his scheme. He doesn't change his plan for what he's about to do. He continues to follow the Father's plan for why he came to this earth. We even need to take for a moment and consider the significance of it being Passover at this time. Because that wouldn't have been that. This is very significant for what Jesus is about to do. Because as I've already said, Passover would have been one of the festivals of the Israelites were reflecting on this relationship of God, bringing them out of the land of Egypt and bringing them out of the land of bondage, but bringing them into a relationship with him. They would have been rejoicing in God's gracious dealings with how he has preserved them throughout these years. And if we were to look back at Exodus 12, if we were to look and see exactly what God has commanded the people to do, that he tells them, it's spelled out for us what people during Passover are supposed to do in verses 1 to 13 of Exodus 12, that every family was to have an unblemished lamb, and they were to have that lamb for a meal, but ultimately they were to smear the the blood on the doorpost. And the Lord himself says that this blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. Passover was meant to be a memorial of God's gracious provision for his people. That the Lord says that this is why they are to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this day I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generation as a statute forever. This was the feast that Jesus and his disciples are preparing to go eat and partake of. But with this timing of Passover, it shows us actually the exact reason for why Christ came to this earth. Because in our next section we're going to read next week that Pastor Will will give us, they're going to have the Last Supper. But with this meal, Jesus is going to say, this is my body, which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And through this language, Jesus is linking himself to that sacrificial Passover lamb. Jesus is saying that through his sacrificial death he's about to face, He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises found back in the book of Exodus. That Jesus is offering this second exodus for his followers, meaning that 
through his death, they're not just going to, they're not going to receive freedom from bondage of a geopolitical place like Egypt. Jesus is rescuing his people from the slavery to sin. Jesus, through his death, is the climactic fulfillment of the Passover lamb found back in Exodus chapter 12. But remember our question we opened with. What comes to your mind when you think about Christ? We can even rephrase that question for a moment and ask ourselves, why is it that Jesus came to the earth? Some of us don't really like to ask theological questions, and uh, for some, this might even feel like it's not really practical. It's not something that applies to us in our day-to-day life, and this just seems like it's a waste of time to even ask the question, but may I suggest to all of us that this is the very reason for why, if you consider yourself a Christian, this is the message of the gospel. Because sometimes people believe that Jesus, he just simply came and he defeated Satan, he defeated death, he conquered death, and he is the victor. That that's all he did by dying on the cross. He, we even might say that he defeated sin. Some often say that Jesus died as a moral example. He just, he died to sin and we are to follow his example and do the same thing. There may be a a hint of truth to some of these ideas, but may I suggest that through this passage and through Scripture, we can see exactly what is the reason why Christ came to die. According to our text, Jesus, because he is the Passover lamb, he came as our lamb of God who satisfied the wrath and justice of God. Jesus didn't just come to conquer sin at the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for sin in our life today. Sometimes, for those listening, this might be a very uncomfortable thing to think about, of someone dying on the cross, even the the fact that it's God himself punishing his son to actually pay the penalty for us, because some have actually suggested that this sounds like cosmic child abuse. It's a vengeful father punishing his son as an offense for nothing he committed. But what are we to actually believe about Christ and his death? Do you simply see Jesus today as a redeemer? Or maybe it's just a generic moral teacher and we just follow his example. Or is he actually an atoning sacrifice through his death for your sins today? One of my favorite theologians, his name is Herman Bavank, he once said that describing this reality is we have to have both of those realities in our mind, him as our atoning sacrifice and him as our redeemer, because he says that not only objectively he took away our guilt and our shame, but also subjectively that he broke the power of sin in the world. So does it really matter what we say when we think about Christ and his death in our life today? Well, according to our passage today, according to what we have been, we've seen, it matters very deeply what we say about Christ and his death for us. This is the hope of Christianity, that Christ died for sinners, and everyone sitting here today qualifies for that message, for that forgiveness. No matter what your sin may be, maybe looking back at the hypocrisy we talked about, we have the Savior Jesus Christ who, as our own Passover lamb, has satisfied the justice of God in our place. We are not only rescued from the bondage of our sin, but we are rescued 
from God's justice, where we can actually come into a renewed relationship with the God of the universe. And that is why this is such an important truth for us to understand, that even going on, Herman Boving quotes an a ancient church father who once said, Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the unfathomable accomplishment. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the wickedness of the many should be hidden in the one who is just, and the righteousness of the one should justify the wicked many. So for the final time, and in conclusion, I ask you, what comes to your mind when you think about Christ? From our Passover, or from our passage today, we see that he is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is calling each and every one of us to repent of our sins, to turn to him in faith, and turn to him as his, the wonderful Savior that he is. And each of us, no matter where we are in life, we can have the freedom of guilt and shame that we may hold on to. We can be renewed and have this fellowship with God, and we can live a transformed life where we are receiving all the blessings that God has given us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Is that what you believe today? Or do you desire to have that in your life? Then today you have... Jesus offering himself as your Savior and your Lord that you can turn to. And may I suggest that when you turn to him, you will know exactly what you think about when you think about Christ.